Over the last several months, churches in America have been forced to cancel all of their normal services and activities due to the outbreak of COVID-19. And while the virus is impacting and disrupting our lives and our plans, both on a local level and on a global level, the one thing that it has been impossible to disrupt is the gospel. In fact, I believe, and I'm going to set forth two reasons today from Philippians chapter 1, why the virus is beneficial to the gospel. We're going to look at two benefits of the virus upon the gospel. Now at this point, before we get into our text, I believe it's necessary to define what the gospel is. What is the gospel? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And something that potent, something that powerful has to be handled correctly. Paul warns about sharing another gospel that is not the gospel in Galatians 1, 6-7. He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is not really another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. There are people out there distorting the gospel. And it's not the gospel once it's distorted. And those who deliberately spread a different gospel are accursed, according to verses 8 and 9 of Galatians 1. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. The word there for accursed is the Greek word anathema. Anathema. It means to be separated from Christ and given up to divine judgment and destruction. I'll state that again. The word accursed or anathema is to be separated from Christ and given to divine judgment and destruction. That divine judgment and destruction is the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the place that God will send all those who deliberately mishandle, distort, change the gospel message. And unless one falls under God's judgment, let's outline the non-negotiable aspects of the gospel. If we're going to talk about the gospel, if we're talking about preaching the gospel, what are we dealing with? What are we talking about? What are the non-negotiables? And let me be clear here that the gospel is not what a person says the gospel is. It's not what a religion says the gospel is. It's not what the church says the gospel is. The gospel is what Jesus revealed it to be. Galatians 1 verse 11 and 12. For I would have you to know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not According to man, it's not according to a person, a religious organization, a church. No, I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus revealed the gospel. And he revealed that the gospel is his death, his burial, and his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I make known to you, brethren 
the gospel which I preached to you, which I also received, in which also you stand. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Right there is the central point of the Gospel, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. He died according to the Scriptures for our sins. He was buried, He was raised on the third day, again, according to the Scriptures. So that's the core of our Gospel message. If your gospel message doesn't include that Jesus Christ died and shed his blood for sin, buried and rose again the third day, according to the scripture, you have missed the core message of the gospel. Now to that core, there are three essentials as well that must be discussed, that must be included in the preaching of the gospel, in the ministry of the gospel. First of all, there's the sin issue. The sin issue. The first essential of the gospel is the sin issue. The reality of sin has to be established. Christ died for what? For sin. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. That includes every person, every man, every woman, every child, every human being on planet earth is a sinner. And I, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 again says, Christ died for our sins. See, the gospel message has to begin with the sin issue. Every person has sinned. And in order for someone to receive the gospel, they have to acknowledge they're a sinner. Two, the result of sin must be explained. Romans six twenty three, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the penalty for sin is death. Death isn't just the cessation of life. It's the separation from God. And my friend, that is the position of every sinner. Every sinner is separated from God. And because they are separated from God, due to their sin, they are going to be sent to hell to await the second death. And the second death is eternal punishment in the lake of fire. And Revelation 21 verse 8 says that lake burns with fire and brimstone. It is the second death. You see, you need to understand here when we deal with the sin issue that hell and the lake of fire are critical to the gospel message because it provides us the urgency of the gospel. Why is it so urgent? Because people are dying and on their way to hell and eventually the lake of fire. That's why the gospel's urgent. You've sinned and your sin has sent you under a curse and that curse is hell. Hell and the lake of fire are critical to the gospel, not just because it provides an urgency to the message but because it shows the full nature of God. Yes, God's love. But God is also just and jealous and angry against sin. And hell and the lake of fire are so critical to the gospel because they show just how egregious your sin is. Dealing with the sin issue here, the third thing we need to say about that is that repentance of sin must be expressed. Luke 24, 46-47, He said to them, Thus it is written, 
that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for sin, forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Well, right there, he's talking about uh, the Great Commission. He's talking about what we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, going to all the world, start in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. And to these individuals out there telling you, you don't need repentance, I got news for you. Christ himself said, you've got to preach repentance beginning in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the othermost parts of the world. And let's be clear about what repentance is and isn't. Repentance is not changing your mind about Jesus. Repentance is recognizing your sin and turning from sin to serving God. 1 Corinthians 7, 9 to 10, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. You were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of this world produces death. Well, I can't work for salvation. You're right, you can't work for salvation. But repentance is no more a work of salvation than is faith. It's part of that gift of God. It's the will of God. He made us sorrowful according to his will. He made us sorrowful to the point of repentance. Uh, Acts chapter 26, verse 18 and 20. To open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. But keep declaring, and what are we to keep declaring? That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. In other words, when you repent, there's going to be deeds that follow. There's going to be fruit or evidence of that repentance. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols, that's repentance, to serve a living and true God. And let's be clear that if someone does not repent of their sin, there is no hope for them. Luke 13, verse 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now once a sinner has been cast into hell, they are incapable of repentance and faith. If believers neglect the doctrine of hell, it is going to have a dire effect on our mission. Now, some of you may be listening and thinking, well, how can a loving God send people to hell? The answer is very straightforward. God did not choose hell for anyone. In fact, God says, I would want all sinners to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9. You need to understand, people choose hell for themselves. When you reject the gospel, when you reject the work of Christ, His death, shed blood, burial, resurrection... For you're saying, when you reject that, you've chosen hell for yourself. And because of His holiness, God must bring about the just outcome of those individuals choose for themselves. So, the core message of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins, buried, and rose again. We said that essential to that is the sin issue. A second essential to the core message is the Savior's identity. A second essential of the gospel is the Savior's identity. The identity of the Savior is important 
Because it's the Savior, the person who died for our sin. 1 Corinthians 15.3 I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Now, we need to understand something about this Savior. To be the sacrifice for sin, he can't just be another Joe guy come walking down the street. No, he is God. For in him, Colossians 2.9 says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He is the creator. Revelation 14.6-7 I saw an angel flying amid heaven having an eternal gospel. It's eternal. Gospel's eternal. Been around from the beginning. To preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God, giving glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of waters. You see, this one who died, this Savior who died for humanity to cover, to pay the price of sin, is not just God, he's God the Creator. And God the Creator is the judge who will cast the wicked into the lake of fire. Matthew 10, 28. Don't fear those who kill the body and are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in the lake of fire. You see, as Creator, He holds, Jesus holds your eternal destiny in His hand. The second thing you need to know about the Savior's identity, not only is He God, the Creator, God, the Judge, but He is fully human. He is fully human. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. You see, God the Father required a payment for the penalty of sin. And that payment involves death and the shedding of blood. In order to pay the penalty of sin, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, became fully human. He took upon himself a body of flesh and blood. Because Hebrews 9.22 says, Almost all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So you need to understand that He is God, He is human, and number three, when we talk about the Savior's identity, He is sinless. 1 Peter 1.22 Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. A sinless God requires the payment for sin to be sinless. And Jesus is sinless, why? Because He's God. And because he's sinless and because he's human, he can be the sacrifice demanded by God to pay the penalty of sin. A fourth thing to consider regarding his identity, the Savior's identity, and that is he is Lord. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, I make known to you, that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now I want to make it very clear here that salvation is not simply believing that Jesus is the Savior. Salvation is submitting to Him as Lord. Submission to His Lordship only comes by way of the Holy Spirit. You see, at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. And therefore, at the moment of salvation one will begin to submit their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what is meant by the Spirit bearing witness with a person's spirit in Romans 8.16. 
You see, submission to the Lord is proof that the Holy Spirit resides in you. By confessing that He is Lord, you are committing yourself to obey Him. As Luke 6, 46 says, Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? So one of the fruits, one of the evidences that you've submitted to His Lordship is that you do what He says. And then that brings us third to the third essential of the gospel, the sinner's invitation. The sinner's invitation. Now let us be clear again that an invitation is not a request to raise a hand or walk an aisle. Jesus already issued the invitation. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is an open invitation to all and any who hear. But that invitation, note this, that invitation is worded in such a way that only those who, are, who will understand or can understand their sinfulness will respond. And those who hear the call, those who hear the invitation, are commanded to repent and believe. John 6, 29, This is the work of God that you believe in Him who He has sent. Acts 10, 43, Of Him all the prophets bear witness that through His name everyone who believes in Him receives the forgiveness of sins. Acts 17, 30, Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. You see, repentance and faith are dual sides of the same coin. On the one side is repentance, a change of behavior, a confessing and forsaking of sin, a turning from sin, a turning to God, a denial of oneself. On the other side of the coin is faith. It placing one's confidence in the work of Christ, His death for your sin, His burial, His resurrection, and surrender to His Lordship is evidence of repentance and faith. If you refuse to obey the Son's call to repent and believe, then my friend, you will burn in the lake of fire for all eternity. You see, the gospel message proclaims two destinies, eternal life or eternal damnation, heaven or the lake of fire. And it's equally important to show to people that receiving God's gift of grace results in a glorious future, but a rejection of that gift of grace results in a disastrous condemnation. See, at its core, the message of the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. But congruent to that message is the sin issue, the Savior's identity, and the sinner's invitation. Without those essentials and without that core, the gospel is not the gospel. Now having identified what is the gospel, I want to go to our text in Philippians chapter 1 to show two benefits of the virus upon the gospel. You see, the virus has disrupted our lives, as I said. It's disrupted our plans, as I've said. But it has not disrupted the gospel. Let's turn over to Philippians chapter 1, shall we? Philippians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 12 to 14 for our first point. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Paul says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren 
trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. You know, it's amazing as we read this text that Paul does not speak a word of complaint about his situation. Paul is in prison. Therefore, Paul is in lockdown. Paul is under stay-at-home orders. Paul is socially distanced from everyone around him and does not speak a word of complaint about his situation. He's not asking, why is this happening to me? I've served God faithfully all these years. He's not saying, I've always sought to do God's will. Why is he doing this to me? You see, the modern approach would be, oh, Paul, you need to get in touch with your feelings. Paul, how do you feel about the way God is treating you? Go ahead, Paul, be honest. Get out your anger. Get out your rage. God can take it. Tell him how you feel. That's not what Paul did, and that's what no one said to Paul. Paul said, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He said, I'm rejoicing, verse 18, and I'm determined to keep on rejoicing. See, the modernist would tell you Paul's in denial. Paul wasn't in denial. Paul was looking at things from a divine perspective. And see, our first point here this morning is the fact that the virus provides an opportunity to advance the gospel. The virus provides an opportunity to advance the gospel. As I said, Paul was looking at the circumstance from a divine perspective. He recognized that all of the events that had befallen him could be redeemed for God's sake. And he took what advantage he could to continue his mission. His primary concern was that the gospel go forward. And despite his circumstances, adverse as they were, the gospel went forward. Again, notice his statement here. My circumstances, my imprisonment, my lockdown, my stay-at-home order, my social distancing has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. The Greek text simply says, the things to me. Now we translate that as my circumstances, but what things happened to Paul? And I believe in that statement, he has included all of the events from his imprisonment at Jerusalem, all the way up until his now imprisonment at Rome. There, were, there was a riot about Paul. There was a two-year imprisonment at Caesarea. There was the appeal to Caesar. There was the threat on his life. There was the trip to Rome with the shipwreck. There was his house arrest. There was his restricted freedom. And now his impending trial. However, Paul speaks of these things simply as my circumstances and speaks in terms of the effects on the Roman soldiers and the Roman church, not him. Paul isn't looking at his circumstances and saying, woe is me. He's looking at his circumstances and saying, well, praise God, look at how he's used these circumstances to advance the gospel. And I believe, again, one of the first benefits of this virus 
upon the gospel is that it is advancing the gospel. It has given us an opportunity to advance the gospel in ways we wouldn't have had three months ago. Now, the church at Philippi probably was expecting the worst. But Paul quickly counters the situation. He says, listen, the gospel made greater progress. The Greek word there is the term for advance. Advance. In fact, the Greek term is used to describe a blazing trail or one who blazes a trail before the army. So the army's marching forward, but they can't get through. And so someone goes ahead and blazes a trail. And Paul saw his events. He saw his lockdown, if you will. He saw his social distancing. He saw his stay-at-home order as the means of forging new territory for the gospel. And have we stopped to consider, have you stopped to consider how this virus has provided opportunities to advance the gospel? Paul says his circumstance brought him into contact with a select group of people the soldiers, and the Roman officials, who otherwise would have had no relationship to him. And this prompted renewed evangelistic effort throughout the city. While others may have seen, oh, this is the end of Paul's missionary activity, this is the end of his evangelism, this is the end of his gospel ministry, Paul saw it as, hey, there's new ways to advance the gospel. The events which seemed to inhibit the freedom of the gospel actually became the springboard of the gospel. Paul didn't say in spite of these events. He said through these events. He went to Rome as a prisoner and in reality the gospel went to Rome. And friends, this is the way it's always been with God. Think about Joseph, cast into a pit, sold into slavery, by and by magnifies God and praises his providence. Israel, when pursued by Pharaoh's army, a moment later is heard singing a song of triumph on the other side of the Red Sea. Job, deprived of his children, his earthly goods, his health, arrives at a deeper insight into the mystery of God's wisdom than ever before. Jehoshaphat, threatened by the Ammonites and the Moabites, offers a soul-stirring prayer in the midst of his distress which is quickly followed by praise, victory, and thanksgiving. Jeremiah was cast into a muddy cistern. He suffered all kinds of afflictions, and yet he coined that famous phrase, immortalized in scripture and song, great is thy faithfulness. Our Lord Jesus Christ crucified by means of his very cross, gained victory over sin, death, Satan, and causes every true believer to exclaim these words, far be it from me to glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter and John imprisoned became bolder than ever in proclaiming Christ to be the only Lord and Savior. The early church, when scattered abroad, improved, took those very opportunities to go about doing what? Spreading the gospel. In Paul's undesirable situation, the gospel spread through the ranks of the soldiers. You know, the term praetorian here, referring to the praetorian guard, refers to the emperor's bodyguards. Now, there were nine of these individuals. Paul was able to reach the nine individuals who guarded Caesar himself. 
Now, we don't know if any of those guards were converted, and it doesn't matter if they were or weren't, because we're not interested in the conversion. What we're interested in is obeying the command to go and preach the gospel, to go and spread the gospel. Listen, the gospel will, will do its work. Bible promises that God's word will not return void. And understand, if it returns, if someone receives the gospel and their response is no, listen, it got a response. Maybe not the response we'd like, but nonetheless it got a response. It didn't return void. But understand, it is the preaching of the gospel that changes individuals that transforms lives, that changes hearts, that brings people to faith and repentance. But how will they hear unless someone takes the gospel? In this case, that someone was Paul. And in our case, that someone is all of us. Paul was under constant guard. These guards would relieve each other. We don't know how long each of their shifts were, but regardless, Paul took every opportunity to spread the gospel to each one he came in contact with. You know, I'm sure when they first started guarding Paul, they took note of his patience, his gentleness, his courage, his unswerving loyalty to inner conviction, and they were deeply impressed. And I ask you, what, is, what are your unsaved family members, your unsaved friends, your unsaved co-workers, your unsaved neighbors, the unsaved people you rub shoulders with, when they look at you and how you're reacting and what you're doing with our situation, are they taking note of your patience, your gentleness, your courage, and your unswerving loyalty to conviction? Here's these hardened soldiers, these rude legionaries, who presumably would be the very last to be affected in any way by the gospel, and they were deeply moved by what they saw, what they heard, and what they felt in the presence of Paul. They listened to Paul as he talked to his friends. They listened to Paul as he dictated his letters to his secretary. He li they listened to Paul as he talked to the judges. They listened to Paul as he cried out to God in prayer. And they listened to Paul as he even talked to them. You know, it's not difficult to imagine at first they, they probably listened with a measure of disdain or hardly even listened at all. But after a while, they became interested. And that interest level grew. And then they became enthusiastic. And what they learned, they began to spread. Hey, listen, guys, we're guarding a very valuable prisoner. And he's remarkable. And we're convinced that his imprisonment is not for any crime that he's committed. He's simply imprisoned because of his connection with Christ. And that news spread from guard to guard to the families of the guards, even to Caesar's own household. If you're there in Philippians, turn over to chapter 4 and verse 22, and notice what it says, All the saints greet thee, especially those of Caesar's household. Right in Caesar's own house, people were being transformed by the power of the gospel. Why? How? Because Paul was faithful in spite of his circumstances. He was faithful to keep preaching, keep spreading, keep sharing the gospel. Paul's case, even better, Christ's cause became the talk of town. And that meant progress, advancement for the gospel. 
You know, the second result of Paul's circumstance involved the church at Rome. Okay, verse 13, the gospel was spread throughout the Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And then verse 14, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Again, this is part of that opportunity to advance the gospel. You know, the people in Rome, the Christians in Rome in particular, were living a very difficult existence. Several years before this, Christianity had been outlawed in Rome, and many of the Christians had to flee. Aquila and Priscilla were among them uh, who had to flee the city of Rome. And uh, there was very little uh, allowances for the Christian faith in the city of Rome. And the Christians that were still there in Rome were living in fear. But as they watched Paul advance the gospel through his circumstances, his faith, his confidence, his patience helped his fellow believers in Rome to become more confident in the Lord, whereas they had lacked confidence to preach the gospel, where they had been afraid to speak up, where they had left off on the mission work of the gospel because they lacked boldness. Maybe even some were wondering if it was worth the price. They saw Paul's faith and it strengthened their faith. And they began to spread the gospel with greater boldness and without fear. Notice the end of verse 14. These Roman believers have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. I certainly hope and pray that as we're going through this uh, health situation, that as you're looking at those who are out there preaching the gospel, those that are out there still proclaiming the word of God, that it might encourage you to do the same. That it might encourage you, wherever you may be, to say, hey, you know what? I want to be part of that gospel ministry. I want to be part of proclaiming the word of God. What can I do? What, where, what's my part? You know, maybe up to this point you've been afraid. What can I say? Well, there's nothing I can do. Sure, there's something you can do. Get boldness. Lay aside the fear. And start sharing the word of God. Start sharing the gospel. You know, I mean, the Christians, you know, in the last three months, I've seen them sharing all kinds of things. I've seen them sharing, you know, opinion pieces. I've seen them sharing, you know, uh, their, their thoughts, their likes, their dislikes about all kinds of issues. Political, non-political. But you know what? I see very little out there proclaiming the gospel. You know what warms my heart? When I see a fellow believer on social media shares a verse, shares a message, shares a hymn, that's encouraging. That's exciting. And while you think, well, it's not that big of a deal, I'm going to tell you something. It takes boldness on the part of most Christians 
to share anything about the Lord on social media. What are my friends going to think? You know, I've got unsaved friends. What are they going to think? Don't worry about what they're going to think. What's God think? And what, what can God do with it? That you've not even thought about. Did Paul, when he was arrested in Jerusalem, even begin to think that he would reach the Praetorian guards? No! Sure, he didn't have one iota of an idea. But he grabbed his circumstances and used them to advance the gospel. Rather than becoming depressed, discouraged, and disillusioned, rather than wallowing self-pity and despair, he regards his imprisonment as an appointment. I am put here to fulfill God's greater purpose. God used his imprisonment to bring the gospel right to the emperor himself to the point that people in, his, in Caesar's household, now Caesar didn't, but people in Caesar's household came to repentance and faith. Friend, if you've got a problem accepting your lot in life, if you've got a problem accepting where you're at, ask yourself, why? Are you resenting where God has placed you? Stop and realize, God, you don't need to resent where God's placed you. Praise God for where He's placed you because He's placed you in a place where you can serve. Whether it's in an actual prison or a place that feels like one, God wants us to serve Him faithfully and joyfully. You know, so the, the virus, I believe, just like Paul's imprisonment, provides an opportunity to advance the gospel. Secondly, the virus has provided us an opportunity to defend the gospel. Look at verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Here's Paul, imprisoned, locked down, stay at home, stay away from people. And now Paul's hearing reports that some of the brothers and sisters who have been newly emboldened to speak about Christ were out there doing it out of envy and rivalry. And this is one of the things that happens. Anytime you're out there serving the Lord, and anytime that God's working, you're going to have amongst honest, true believers, you're going to have, even amongst them, some who are going to look at it as a rivalry. There's going to be a jealousy. Oh, how come they're reaching so many people? Why aren't we reaching that many people? Well, what's that? What's he? Look at what he's doing. Well, I want to be more important than him. I want my name to be more important than his name. And on and on it goes. Yes, even in the church. Now, so there was some preaching Christ out of envy, they had jealousy, and out of rivalry. Others were preaching Christ out of goodwill. That's with pure motives. 
They wanted to help others to the faith and they wanted to glorify God. And that's what I want us to take away from this. You know, as, as we have an opportunity to advance the gospel and defend the gospel, we have to be constantly checking our motives. You know, if we're looking at this as an opportunity to build our name, build our reputation, look at us, how wonderful we are, then we're doing it for the wrong reason. We have to stop and say, wait a minute, I need to do it out of goodwill, I need to do it with pure motive, and my motive has to simply be this, one, to glorify God, two, to see people brought to the Lord. Now the comment here by Paul provides us a very interesting look at people's motives. All of those who preached Christ were sincere believers. He calls them brethren. They had the right doctrine. They were sharing it with others. And the end result was people were hearing the gospel. But unfortunately, some had wrong motives in their preaching. Here's the great missionary Paul, virtually silenced in prison. And some people are trying to make a name for themselves in the vacuum that Paul left. Maybe they were trying to get great notoriety. Maybe they were trying to turn people's eyes away from Paul towards themselves. You know, these people had no personal love for Paul. They even hoped that their planting churches and gaining converts would even upset Paul. And you know, one of the things I have found over the years is that the most stinging criticism comes from fellow believers, not the world. You know, I expect the world to be hostile. We expect, I expect Christians to be on our side. But I have encouraged the most hostility from people, quote-unquote, in the church, in Christianity, not from those outside the church. And those who were preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry were doing so because of selfish ambition. They wanted to build a personal following. They were playing politics to get people on their side. They weren't living self-denial. They weren't living for Christ. They were only interested in their own reputation. And you know what's disturbing here is they were not preaching a different gospel. They were not preaching another Jesus. These were not false teachers. These were not dogs and evil workers. Paul never tolerated that. If these had been false teachers, he'd have addressed it. Their problem was these were good believers with bad motives. Their content was right. Their motive was wrong. And we need to always check ourselves. Always checking our motives. And then there's those who preach Christ out of goodwill. They knew Paul was in prison, not because of any criminal act, but for the defense of the gospel. Paul had landed in prison because of his devotion and zeal to spread the gospel. And he said, I'm here for the defense of the gospel. The word defense there is the word apologia. It's used seven times in the New Testament. And it is to give a defense, a public defense. And Paul says, I am here to make a public defense of the gospel. You know, the most important reason to give a defense or to do what we call apologetics, that's what apologetics is, a defense of the gospel, is that God commanded us to. 1 Peter 3.15, But in your heart set apart Christ as the Lord and be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have with gentleness and respect. Being ready is not just a matter of having right information. It's an eagerness to share the truth of what we believe. You know, right now you've got great opportunities to be reaching people but also to be preparing yourself 
that is, you interact with these people, you have answers to give them from the Scripture. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says we are supposed to be demolishing arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We're to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We've got to confront issues, whether it's in our own mind or in the minds of others, and point them back to the Scripture. That's what we did last week, last Sunday's message about honoring God and government in a pandemic. That was an apologetic Jude 3 tells us we've got to contend for the faith that was once delivered. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy to keep a close watch on himself and his teaching. Because Scripture is profitable for teaching, yes, but also for what? Defense, reproof, correction, and training. Titus 1.9 makes it uh, clear that this is a requirement for church leadership. An elder in the church, quote, is to hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. You don't refute it by giving your opinion or what you think. You refute it by opening up the pages of Scripture. And anyone attempting to answer the question of unbelievers, you're going to be tempted to lose patience but remember, your goal is that they might come to the knowledge of truth that Jesus died for their sins. And we can't neglect obedience to this command. Friends, the virus has provided us with an opportunity. An opportunity to advance the gospel and to defend the gospel right from our own homes. Being in prison, being at home, being stuck has caused many to become bitter. Maybe you've even given up. But I want you to see it and grasp it as an opportunity to spread the gospel. Understand that your current circumstances aren't as important as what you do with your current circumstances. Take this bad situation and turn it into a good situation by reaching people you've never been able to reach before. Don't be discouraged. Yes, there's a global virus. Yes, there's financial burdens. Yes, there's loss of jobs and loss of life. But take each of these things as an opportunity from God. I want to offer you a couple areas as we close that we need to adjust going forward in order to advance and defend the gospel. First, we need to adjust our prevalent gospel presentation to start highlighting repentance, lordship, and the kingdom of God as they are so evident in the gospel the book of Acts, and the epistles. There is no biblical basis to be out there just telling people, well, just ask Jesus into your heart. These Jesus is Savior-only messages. Listen, the quality of convert is going to be determined by the content of your message. And if you want New Testament results, you've got to recover the New Testament message. And that message involves the whole gospel. The core of the gospel, Jesus died for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day according to the scripture. And then to deal with the sin issue and the Savior's identity and, and then the sinner's call. It's got to be there. Second, I believe we need to follow the blueprint of Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. The church, well, listen, we're a body, but you've got to get in your head, believer, that the building isn't the church. You and I, we are the church. And while I look forward to the day we can be back in our building, 
We're not defined by our building. Listen, if the church to you is nothing more than an auditorium-centered spectator sport with somebody standing here to entertain you, then you're failing to be the church. God's gifted us. And Ephesians 4 makes it clear that He's gifted us with those who teach. And we teach, why? To equip you, the saints, to do the work of the ministry. My job is to equip you, and I'm going to do that job. Whether... When we're together or whether we're unable to be together and we've got to do it online, we've got to do it through letters and we've got to do it through text messages and however else we've got to do it, I'm going to equip you. And I want to encourage you to do your job of continuing to do the work of the ministry. And the first work of the ministry is advancing. The second work of the ministry is defending. Advancing and defending what? The gospel. Third, I believe we need to change the way we think about evangelism. We used to think that evangelism was primarily something that you go and do. Listen, evangelism is a lifestyle. And I want to give you three tips for everyday evangelism. Number one, pray daily for open doors and boldly take advantage of them. I can't leave my house. Man, you've got a telephone, you, you've got internet, you've got iPads, Androids, whatever... Whatever tools you have available, you say, well, I don't have any of that. You got a pen and paper? Write a letter. Pray for a daily for open doors and boldly take advantage of that. Number two, I want you to make a list of people to pray for. Listen, you make a list of people, and some of you I know are doing this. But make a list of friends, loved ones, enemies and frenemies, in-laws and outlaws, who need to hear the gospel, put their names down in writing, and start praying directly for them. And share them with somebody else. Hey, you know, my so-and-so needs salvation. Pray with me. And then number three, make the time to contact these lost individuals and share the gospel. One of the things that I'm going to do over the next several weeks is begin loading more content onto the website and into our social media accounts beyond just our Sunday service and our Wednesday devotion, that you have material that you can listen to, that you can continue learning, that you can continue to grow, and that you can pass on to others. Man, I don't know what to say. Don't worry. I'm gonna, I'll put a gospel message up there. All you got to do is take that, click it, and share it. We're going to advance the gospel. And we're going to put some material there to help you defend the gospel. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 9, I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Listen, I'm going to do all things for the sake of the gospel and I'm challenging you to be a fellow partaker with me. Our present circumstances are not ideal, but that doesn't negate our responsibility to continue fulfilling the Great Commission. Just because we're not able to meet like normal doesn't mean we can't still do the work. God's provided us an incredible tool in the form of the Internet that previous generations never have. In fact, we're able to reach even more people now than ever because we have so many more listening to our services online. Father God in heaven, I thank and praise you that you have given us this opportunity. Lord, we confess it's not ideal and we don't like it and it's frustrating. But Father, help us through our circumstance to, like Paul, defend and advance the gospel. You've provided us with this opportunity.
Lord, don't let us fumble the ball, but help us to run the race and keep our eyes focused on that goal, the high calling of Jesus Christ. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.